Welcome to Hearthside Salons. I'm Heidi Hornbacher of Pagecraft Writing. Each week we bring you conversations with creators and innovators to feed your creative fire. Welcome to Season 2 of Hearthside Salons. You know that idea that we should do something that scares us every day? Writer and story coach Lynn Ferguson takes it to heart. It's part of the litmus test she uses to choose her path. And she digs deeper. She knows that for all of us, finding our creative voices can be about navigating crushing self-worth issues. Today, we talk about the importance of identifying the reasons you can't do something, and the truth that, despite any planning, we really only understand our path in retrospect. She also distills the key differences between US and UK comedy, structure and teeth. In true Lynn fashion, we start with a casual nugget of wisdom, this one about Zoom backgrounds. A note to listeners, there are unbeep swear words in this episode. I like that you've got your, you've got your TARDIS blue uh, screen behind you so you can, you can be anywhere. I did, you know, do anywhere you, in space you and time. Miata? Did you know Miata? Do you no. Know no, I did a podcast with her right at the beginning of the pandemic. And what she uh, she taught me this thing that I didn't know. And then I was like, oh, my God, I really do need to know that. Well, she said that everybody's background tells a story, that it's telling the story all the time. So that yeah. when you're on Zoom, you are speaking, but you're also presenting the scene of who you are. And she said, so I, I wonder where you're at with that, considering you're working on other people's stories. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, it's not really about my story. I have to, like, not have a story. So I'm going to paint my doors and nobody's going to have a story. And then I can work on other people's. So that's what that's about. Lynn Ferguson, welcome to Hearthside Salons. Oh, well, thank you for asking me, Heidi Hornbacker. <laughs> I'm very pleased to be here. <laughs> I am so like this is so we're kicking off season two tonight. I'm a little rusty, uh, but I'm just thrilled. We're all to... rusty. Oh, Everybody's man. rusty, right? right? You know, I said to Mark, who's my husband, podcast listeners, said to Mark on Friday, I feel like I should have got a little rosette for getting through last week. You mm. know, like a well done, good effort. Because uh, <laughs> it's this thing as I've as the world is changing, I'm like, oh, I was just getting used to the old way, and now mm-hmm. I'm in this new way. How does that work, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, we I want to talk about all of that. So, like, first of all, in case people might not have clocked it, you're Scottish. I am. Um, I'm not actually. I'm from Orange County. I just I hear that in LA, you've got to have like some kind of interesting thing. You've got to have a way about you. So I put on this really thick Scottish, impenetrable Scottish accent in order that people will find me memorable. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. So tell me about, you know, you grew up in Cumbernauld, which I don't know much about, except for it's not, it's not Edinburgh, it's not Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> What was your childhood like? Did your family, like, do they prize creativity or was it sort of like, what are you doing wanting to do this creative stuff? It's interesting. Well, first of all, the, one of the things about Cumbernauld that you can be, you can be assured about not really knowing where Cumbernauld is, in that uh, for the longest time, the marketing slogan to sell Cumbernauld was, what's it called? Cumbernauld, right? So even Amazing. people of Cumbernauld weren't entirely sure about that. 
but um, it is in between Glasgow and Edinburgh, really, favouring on the side of Glasgow, sort of a little bit north into the east of Glasgow. And it was built to take the overspill from uh, Glasgow. Like, Glasgow was bombed really heavily during the war. Mm. Uh, uh, after the war, people were living in, in really cramped conditions and they built these, like, towns, new towns around Scotland where they just took people and put them in there, which was both good and bad. But my mother was seen as being very courageous, very courageous, um, because at the time that they moved to Cumbernauld, she had, I think there was three siblings. So she had my eldest siblings, right? Well, there's only four of us. So I wasn't born, but the rest of them were. And there was three of them and my parents. So five people living in a room and kitchen, which oh, is basically Lordy. a room with another room that is a kitchen. <laughs> As advertised and on the yeah, right. It was a room and kitchen. That was what you got. And so when they moved out there, there was... My mother talked about how she felt that um, the people who moved to Cumbernauld or moved to the other towns were ready for something new, were ready for mm. a different way of life. And I think to a great degree that's true. There was like... It was complicated. If you asked people about Cumbernauld, they'd go one of two ways. Either it was brilliant or it was rubbish. The complication was that uh, Scotland, the West Coast of Scotland has a Catholic Protestant sectarianism mm. thing and people lived in different areas. But in Cumbernauld, mm. they all lived together. And mm. so that could be complicated. That could sure. be, because it's history, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but my mother had this thing about that we would not necessarily be, uh, you know, sort of explorers or anything, but she did, she was quite demanding on what she she wanted for her kids and she wanted I guess hope mm. my dad finished his formal education at seven wow. he was evacuated during the war and was sent out to basically a farm where it was meant to be safe but actually really what it was was cheap farm labor mm. and my dad I think still uh, was he's very very much a, an intellectual and, and a philosopher but like literally, if you stop your education at seven, you don't really, you you only know what it is that you know, but you don't know yeah. where that's rooted. So in my family, nobody had ever gone to college or university. That wasn't a thing. My uncle James went, my mother's younger brother. He was the first one. And then uh, my mom wanted that all of us would get a college degree or a degree. And so my sister and brother both did. And then Craig came along and he wasn't for a degree. That wasn't going to happen. And he was very much into a degree of alcoholism at the time, I think. And then, uh, so it was a little easier for me because I was younger. But then I get accepted to the Royal Scottish Academy, which nobody really understood what that was about, including me. I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I only agreed to do it because uh, my best friend, Rachel, was going. It or sounds she fancy. It is fancy. They only admit 20 people. There was wow. only one of 20 and that was me. So I've got a, I have got a degree in drama from the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama. And uh, I literally only went there because I went for a sausage sandwich at my friend Rachel's house and she thought it was a good idea. And I was like, yeah, right, okay. And then I did. So um, there wasn't, I'd love to tell you there was some great 
plan in my story that I mm. could structure it out in a way that was like uh, this happened because of this but like most people's lives we get to where we are understanding the track in retrospect not mm -hmm. really at the time yeah to be honest my whole thing is chance I like I'd love, I have this thing where I go yeah well I did this thing and it was really because I worked really hard and I did this th but but what I think worked for me was just like an opportunity happened and I'd go okay am I a bit scared of that yeah I'm a bit scared of that probably I should do it then right mm -hmm. so um at the end of drama school I, there was a thing where you needed an act you needed an, a union card an equity card and you couldn't mm -hmm. get one unless a theater gave you it or you did cabaret or something Mm -hmm. so uh I actually got offered a job at the Citizens Theatre Glasgow but they didn't have a card so then I was like oh god damn it I better do something so then I did a comedy double act with a, another friend of mine and then that went really well and we ended up you know making money and I was like oh, this stuff works and then the reason really I sort of properly got into comedy was because I met a guy who's lovely um, now passed sadly called Kim Kinney and he was the booker at the comedy store in London and he had just started doing this uh, producing and directing directing probably this live stand-up comedy show and he said that he would give me 250 pounds if I could do three minutes of stand-up on this tv show and I was like oh okay that's an interesting thing. Yeah, three does minutes. Does scare That's me? Yes. Yeah, no, and I was like, does it scare me? Oh, yes, it scares me. That seems to be the quota. So uh, so I did it. And then from there on in, I started doing stand-up, and I earned money doing it. And so um, I think comedy is very much a part of everything. I don't, I don't really trust people who don't laugh. Because even in the worst parts of everything there's always something kind of funny. Mm -hmm. um, it's a little bit like, it, like, I guess, like I feel like laughing and crying are two different coins of exactly the same thing. And so definitely, even when I'm reading a script or working on one, I'm like, where is the dark and where is the light? And in the same way that I don't believe everything is funny because that's annoying, I also believe it's equally annoying if everything's miserable. I don't think it's realistic. Well, I think that balance is so important. And that's one of the cool. things that I love about your storytelling is, you know, Thank a lot you. of people that are straight comedians comes out of this deep well of depression. But, you know, so there's that, like that brand of comedian or whatever, that variety. And I feel like you come out of just a balanced worldview. And, you know, there's sure there's darkness, but you're always like reaching for the, the human spark. And like, what's I beautiful. love that you said balanced worldview. Because world if you'd seen me on Twitter like half an hour ago, you'd have gone, there's nothing balanced about her at all. I was like, look at him. Look at that. He's a douchebag. And tell him to do that. Fire him. Fire him. And what do you mean about like not very balanced? I think what I did learn and what I, what I believe that story is about for me and everything, whether it's, it doesn't, like it's, uh, I've worked, a, I had a lot of um, private clients today, all of various different things. They all do different things. 
But the one thing that they all have in common is storytelling is a desire to connect. I dislike storytelling when it's a desire to show off or to rise above. And the storytelling work that I like to do is in order that one person can understand what it's like to see through the eyes of the the individual who's speaking, right? So um, I guess I kind of have wandered off on a wee track there. I don't know that I'm balanced, except that, you know, and and, and actually I also don't know that I'm terribly good at being me, which means that I wish to connect more. You can't work in story or in writing without periodically sitting down and going, what is life about anyway? What am I here for? Mm-hmm. Most of life is really about that. What am I here for? What am I doing? And um, I feel that in writing um, or in the story work that I do, I get to connect to other people and in some way by doing that, understand myself more. Mm. I'm not even sure if that's balanced. Might be. Well, like I say, watch me on Twitter. There's no balance with me on Twitter. <laughs> Well, I mean, so when I did your storytelling class, you tell yours, I thought I knew what my story was. You know, I thought I came in with sort of, oh, I'm going to talk about this. And I know because I get a laugh when I do that or, oh, that'll make people cry. You know, like I thought I knew what I would talk about. And then you were like, oh, no, no, listen, here's what your story is. And you like pulled it out (laughs) of other things I said. And it became something I never, ever would have like immediately gone for. And I love it. So uh-huh. like what's most important? beautiful story. Oh, thank you. What is most important to you when you're teaching story, storytelling? I, right. So the, this is my play. I feel like I argue about this too often, <laughs> but, um, and now I've stopped arguing. I just, I live in my own little world of this is what I believe, right? We are all of us, each one of us, is in our own personal narrative all the time. We exist in a place called flow, which is, flow is that today you're a success, and then in five minutes you're a failure. In 20 minutes you're the luckiest person in the world, and by the end of the day you regret everything you ever did in your 20s, right? (laughs) We are in a constant place of flow. When we look to do a story, we are, in essence, cutting a piece of this. Like, flow is like the fabric that you would make a dress out of or, or a pair of curtains or some, you know, pillow covers or whatever. So when we make a story, right, we cut a piece out of our narrative and structure it so that it works for what we need it, right? Which is so that I believe that story is really basically a garment that you build from your narrative and the narrative is the thing that is running all the time right so that um often when we tell stories or the stories that we think we should tell are are ones that other people thought were interesting about us that we have received information saying wow you're fabulous when you do that and so we start to define ourselves with this outside um information I am this, I am this, I am good at this, I am funny on this day. Um, The way that I work with story is I'm not really interested in what other people have said you are. I am much more interested in accessing flow in order that you can build the structure that you wish to build. Mm -hmm. The the stuff with teaching story or, or, 
or actually I generally see narrative work now, which makes me sound like a complete pretentious douchebag, but I haven't found a better way of saying it. Um, is I like for people, and I always, well, you know this, like when I work with people privately, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what they're working with them on. doesn't matter what they want to do. They have to do two 90-minute sessions with me before we work on any structure so that we can access flow. Um, and then the bit that I'm interested in that they come with is like, what do you want this for? So sometimes people will come and they'll say, I need to write a book. And you're like, okay. And so let's go to the thing. No, no, I can't go to the thing. I don't want to go to the flow. I've got to write my book first. You're like, that's great. It's, it's lovely. I'm sure it'll be a lovely book, right? Be a lovely book that'll impress somebody that you don't see anymore, who's made you think that you're not that good enough and you probably shouldn't be a writer anyway. So uh, let's let go of the book thing and go for the flow and then you can write a book and order whatever it is that you really want to write anyway. Does that make sense? I've got yeah. my own flow. I, I love it. And, and like the, the analogy of the cutting out of the piece of the fabric and making a garment also says to me, it's something that you're trying on about yourself and that you can take off. Totally. And, and you know, it's totally that. Yeah. And arrange it in a different way. But it's also, it's absurd, right? And right in there, like, there's a lot of, of snobbery in the sense that if you write, a, say you write an essay, even you could never write a movie. You're like, well, why? Like, when I was in Britain, I the kind of stuff that I would write was, I, I mean, I was really, I have been really fortunate. If I look at the pattern of my life, I'm like, God, I really am a lucky bastard, you know? So I go into things really by this, like this thing of, does it feel interesting? Yes. Does it scare me? Meh. Yeah, it does. Right. That's the key to the door for me. Uh, Cause it means that there's something that I, I want to see. But when I was there, I started, I trained as an actor. I then went into cabaret. Then I did stand up. Then I was actually, I didn't really start properly writing until I was 30. And that was only because someone had literally bought and produced, uh, they wanted an hour stand-up show in Edinburgh. They, like I was getting paid to do it. They like put up all the money. It was like a whole hoo-ha thing. And when it came down to it, I couldn't write an hour. I was like, God, this is like really like, you know, it, it's just repeated rhythm. So I wrote a play. And then they forgave me for writing a play and then, or like a solo play. And then the play got made into a TV thing. And then because it got made into a TV thing, then I wrote a sitcom. Then I wrote some more plays. Then I wrote some afternoon plays. Then I wrote a little film. Like the, the, the thing that is, um, when you understand the um, flow is underneath the garments, that that's the fabric then it, it shows the absurdity of, like when I came over here, I was writing on the, uh, on the Late Late Show, so I was a joke writer. And then I met people who were professional joke writers and I'm like, wow, is that a thing? I mean, can you just do that? And then, uh, but while I was writing for them, I was also writing for Pixar, which are not joke writers. They, you know, they write jokes, but they have a totally different rhythm. Like mm -hmm. animation is a completely different zone. Um, I think that, because ultimately, when it comes down to it, the, the commercialism of writing means that you must make a delivery of something. Mm. That it's all very well to make a wonderful design for your fashion. Like, I'm going to make this lovely coat, but 
But in the end, the people are going to buy the coat or that want the coat need to know that it will sell. And therefore, in writing terms, often they will dictate saying, well, if I'm going to buy a coat, I only want it made by somebody who makes coats all the time. Mm-hmm. The, the writer themselves does not need to do that. They have to understand that the discipline is connecting to their voice and maintaining a discipline when it comes to the structure of the garment that they're making. So, for example, if you're making um, a short film, don't mess about with anything that takes up time. Everything is like time, time, time. You want plot, character, gag if you're making it funny. It needs to sitcom, plot, gag, character, every line, no messing about no matter whether you might want to make it a bit lovely flowers, plot gag character, right? And that is exactly the same as saying, I want to make myself a lovely jacket, but I've decided because of fashion, I want to make three arms in a jacket, right? It's the same when it comes to the structuring of story. Know your pattern, understand what it is that you're making. But underneath it all is always flow. Mm-hmm. One of the things I got from you was that the plateaus and the eddies concept of just oh. like you're you're telling a story and then there's a place you know, there's a through line but there's a place where you sort of pause and you give some detail over here and then you go back into the flow and then you pause and you have a breather and you talk and I thought that was such a lovely way to talk about what details to magnify and what details to breeze past. Thank you. Well, I think it's like if you go for a walk with someone, right, you have a choice, right? So you say you're going on a hike with your friend. You're like, well, I'm going to go on a hike up this canyon. And I want to walk really fast because I've heard that fast walking is really good for the cardio. So I'm fast walking with my friend. So then you walk and you walk fast, but your friend might not walk as fast as you or not, um, not particularly want to walk fast. If you're with a friend, you will have a point where you'll stop and go, you okay? Let's take a breather. Yeah, uh, you and me, let's walk in this thing together. And then you walk again, right? The, when you place a plateau, when you do a little place, like it, it allows the person hearing the story to join in. It is like a connection point where you go like, I'm not just telling this story because I need to get it off my chest. I've done all of this thing. I'm in my flow. I've got a big flow going on <clears throat> and I'm totally structured to the max, but I don't really care about you. Um, the areas of plateau are, are places where you let the, the listener or the viewer in. <clears throat> For example, they, sometimes if you're doing something, like when you're doing a story on your own, if you're delivering your own story, it's slightly different in, the, in terms of where those plateaus need to be, like those connection spots. But like, again, in sitcom, there will be somebody who says probably in the first half page of sitcom, oh my God, I can't believe your parents are visiting again, right? Oh my God, are you going for that interview today? Like in the first half page, there is a plateau point where it says, come in, I'm telling you, you watching this, this is what this episode is, are we good? Right? And then they'll be placed. But... So for something like, like sitcom, it's structured uh, fairly rigidly where mm-hmm. the places of connection are. Like if you're doing um, a piece and it's just you and 20 minutes or whatever, you need to work out where the plateaus will be 
according to A, the story, and B, your voice, and, and C, where, what the overall theme of it is. There you go. Gosh, I feel yeah. quite ranty. Am I ranting? <laughs> I feel ranty. No, you're sharing wisdom. It's wonderful. Am I sharing wisdom? You Gosh. are. Well, and I wasn't so when, sharing wisdom on Twitter. I was like, oh my God, did I do it for you? <laughs> it's like very not wisdomy. Piers Morgan, is he still oh, even around? I hope not. Right? Oh, he is. <laughs> that uh, guy. Yeah. If you ever write a bad story and you're feeling really bad about yourself, right? I would just say to yourself, when you've written something really bad and you're like, I'm ashamed. I want you to just think, well, at least I'm not Piers Morgan. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, you and I initially, one of our initial connection points was Duran Duran, because they featured in my story that I told uh, in your workshop. And and then you made Love, Life, Death, and Duran Duran uh, at the Edinburgh, that you took to Edinburgh uh, Fringe. That's so, right. God, yeah. Do you have any further Duran Duran stories I need to know about? No, I don't. She did really well with that. That, that She's... Um, so Sam Shaber came and again, that was one of those things where she had a play that she, I think she thought she wanted to do. And I was like, it's got any songs in it. She was like, um, and I said, well, you know, you're an amazing musician. I don't really see the point of doing a solo piece if you don't have songs in it. That seems like there's a thing when you're writing something for yourself, there's a thing I call a three column. Column one is narrative, right? What's the story? What is it that you're going to do? So if you're working on a play right now, that's how you want to do it. Column one, what is the story? Well, you know, I want to write a thing about my auntie and how she used to collect dogs and then she opened a big dog farm and then somebody tried to explode it, right? You're like, oh, okay. That's the story. That's the story, right? So you're going to have to build on that story. Column two, if it's a solo show, what am I good at? I'm really good at yodeling. That's I'm really good at yodeling. Yodeling, I am. Fun. I was like the Cincinnati champion yodeler of 1978. And you're like, okay, you're really good at yodeling. That's column two. Somewhere along the line in your solo show, you're putting in yodeling, right? And column three are all the reasons why you can't write it. They're like not funny enough. This isn't really interesting. My uh, my aunt didn't really collect that many dogs, right? Like all the things where you're like, oh, my third grade teacher told me I was a douchebag, right? Um, and actually at the end of the day, that will be your quality control. So you do the, the show that you're writing, you make sure column two that you do something that makes you wonderful in it, that you're wonderful, that's in individually you. And column three is the thing that you go to at the end of the day that, where you go, well, technically I have answered my third grade teacher's thing about being a douchebag in scene two, you know, like, because often we don't move forward with an idea because we've got too much noise going on um, with, and, and usually it's about, I'm going to do this solo show, I have to be really impressive. And part of the thing about I have to be really impressive is we tend to forget why we are impressive in the first place. Um, so that always has to go in your column too. So with Sam, yeah, yeah, it did really well. You know, she, Edinburgh, and then she did Delhi, and then she did New York. Wow. And then she's done a podcast, which is, it's about fertility. IVFU, that's what it is, IVFU. Amazing. I love it. What, uh, 
just to switch gears to voice acting. Um, yeah. What was what was their favorite part about Chicken Run? I think just, I love that you're in Chicken Run. Do you know what? That totally. I'm telling you, I would love to tell you that there was some really amazing thing happened where I was like, well, I worked for years on that. I was like, I did all my oh. If I hadn't gone to like drama school and like studied bloody Chekhov, I wouldn't be. I could give you loads of things. But guess what happened, right? Somebody said to me, hey, well, it was an agent I had. They were like, hey, the, uh, this company, Ardman, and, and I was like, God, I've seen them. Yeah, I like them. They do Creature Comforts. They were like, they're doing this movie. Don't know what it's going to be like. But they've asked if you want to come in and read. And I was like, is it interesting? No. It's about chickens. Am I a bit nervous about that? Am I a little scared? Oh, yeah. No. I'm inter- Oh, no. It's interesting. A bit scary. That's for me. And then I went in and that's what happened. It totally was that thing. And I like I love Ardman. They are properly like a little family. They're but they like you know how sometimes you like think about a company and you go, Oh, I really hope that they're like that and then yeah. they turn out not to be like that. No, when you think about Ardman, you go, God, I really love them. I really hope like they're like that. They are like that. They totally are like that. They're lovely. Oh, that's so good to hear. It just seemed like it was such a fun thing and you got to like really just dig into that character. It's weird though, because as a voice actor, you're not really doing much. You're just right. like speaking. Well, you are. Technically you are. You're acting, which is, you know, it's a joke. A thing. I, I sure. agree. It is a thing. Right? You've got to act and it's quite tiring when you're doing it. But like at the premiere, <laughs> I met this woman. It was Mark and I's first. You know, I told Mark, my husband, when I met him, I was a dentist, right? Yes. And then within, I did. I did, so I told him I was a dentist. And then within like uh, six weeks, first six weeks dating, he'd been to three film premieres. But like, um, we were at the chicken run one, and he there was <laughs> looked bewildered. And he, <laughs> like, he clocked by this point you were not in fact a dentist. Yeah. Yeah. No. By he's then, he's a sharp he cookie. He is. No, a sharp it cookie. took him a while. It took a, a large guy running about dressed as a chicken in stilts to persuade him, but he knew. But I met somebody at the premiere party who had been responsible for my hair, for for the animation of just Mac's hair. And I was like, God, I mean, these people are like proper fine artists. They're yeah. amazing, man. That's what know. I find fascinating about screenwriting is you could be connected by a piece of art, but never have met your collaborator because, you know, their part came on after your part was done. And it's such a weird, oh, totally. such a weird world. It is team playing and it's interesting because it in <clears throat> the nature of writing a lot of it is uh for for a lot of people, including myself, is navigating crushing self-worth issues that come when you're trying to make anything, right? That's why I yeah. say whenever you're doing something, call them three it. Because um it is a team thing, but when you're in the process of doing it, it can feel so incredibly solitary. Mm-hmm. you know well I had written down um talking to you tonight about story and the, the important of connection is specifically to combat loneliness and isolation absolutely absolutely you know so a story is an act of service uh, even if it's a bad story the intention is good behind it unless mm. of course you're a douchebag unless of course like when Pierce Morgan tells a story you just know it's not like got good intention but no offense Pierce Morgan all offense, Pierce Morgan. But, um, 
the nature of storytelling is that we are trying to be of service to the rest of humanity by saying what we know. It's kind of an egotistical thing is to do like in that regard. I'm like, but it also is like, I'm trying to help. If that well, is, it's you know, more egotistical than cooking someone a meal or that's a good uh, way. Get, but, yeah. Well, it, but I, mean, you know, I have to, literally. I have to essentially value my point of view enough to think it's worth sharing. Well, that's only if you're not working your column three. I have mm. to say, right? Because the nature of understanding the existence of flow is that nobody ever can or ever will see the world exactly as you do. Therefore, the task of bringing out how you see the world when coupled with uh, the structure of, what, of the garment that you're building and the discipline to do it is kind of the way in negate it. I sort mm. of, I can be a bit rude with people when they're having doubts. <laughs> like with clients, I'm like, well, shit, or go off the pot. Do you know, either you've got something to say, if you're not going to write because you've got nothing to say, then frankly, don't say anything at all, verbally at all, or even like physically for the next day and see how that works for you. Because we're transmitting all the time. This is like, there's one thing saying I'm insecure. There's another thing saying I have doubt about me. But the, the resistance to writing is that, I suppose that's maybe my intolerance is in this thing and that my journey is generally based on, is it interesting and does it frighten me a bit? And because that. that is my key, then usually the more frightened I get, the more interested I am. Mm, I love that. You've made it through a lot of stuff the last few years. Uh, it's made you stronger. Oh, you mean the cancery cancer thing? You know. <laughs> what is, I mean, talk about making you scared. Um, not that you had a choice, you know, in choosing it, but how are you? How did and how? Oh, did, I'm like, totally how... fine. I'm fine. No, it's fine. I, again, I, you know, I really, I um, that I found out I had cancer randomly, but perfectly, which was. I was working on the story with Life, Death and Duran Duran with Sam Shaver. And she tells a story about her friend in that uh, piece, who uh, her friend Hallie, who had had mammograms faithfully and then had thought she was fine. And then she went to her OBGYN and he asked about implants. And she said, I don't have implants. And by then they discovered that she'd had uh, a tumour and it had been growing. And what happened was that before she died, she campaigned because she had dense breast tissue. So she campaigned right to the end. Uh, and just before she died, the law was passed that demanded that um, women with dense breast tissue should also be offered um ultrasound right the breast density mm. aware thing that was her law she passed it right wow. so when we were working on this thing I literally was going oh my god I, I, like and I was totally up to date with mammograms and everything but I had like really sort of ridiculous breast pain <laughs> I'd, I'd come out of the studio and I'd say to Mark Jesus I'm gonna to have to tell her not to come around because I, I, I don't know whether she's haunted or something but like I really feel shit when she's here so then after one session, I was like, you know what, God damn it, I'm going to call up. I'm not due a mammogram, but I'm going to say I've got breast pain. So I called up, got a mammogram, and they looked and they said, you know, 
you have really dense breast tissue. We would advise you to have an ultrasound. So uh, I went for an ultrasound and they found two tumors sitting there, right? Sitting there. So I wouldn't have known about it. They were little. They, one of them would have killed me for sure. So I got them just in time, really. And then the second time I uh, got cancer was really just the same as the first in the sense that I decided to get everything tidied up. It was all a bit, you know, because yeah, everything gets moved around. They can do amazing things, but I was like, things need tidied up. So mm. I have a big scar across my stomach because uh, they built me a breast out of my, they did that, what's called flap surgery. So they built the breast out of um, stomach tissue, stomach fat. Wow. Yeah. And the stomach scar was a mess. And I went to see the surgeon and I said, can you, because I had a big infection. It was all like hoo-ha. Yeah, I remember. I said, can you, could you have a look at that? And he um, he said, yeah, I'll do it, but only if you let me tidy up the breast as well. So I was like, okay, deal. And then he went to do the surgery and there was a tumour just sitting right at the top, just waiting. Jeez. And it, again, it hadn't shown up in anything. So like, I'm totally fine. I'm free and clear, but I feel there, there's that thing about perspective. I, I do feel about cancer that, or my cancer, not everybody's. I feel about my cancer that my life has been saved twice, mm. randomly, and that I am possibly the luckiest fucker. I don't know if I can say that, but I'm sure, sure why not? Because I had cancer, shoot me, right? Um, that I'm possibly the luckiest fucker walking the planet, and that twice my life was saved. I do have the option of going the other way, but actually that wouldn't fit my perspective. No, I really that's... do. It's like, whoa. How could that have happened? Like, and I love that it's twice. It's so you that the first time it was saved essentially by story. Right, totally. I mean, I literally wouldn't, there was no signs, there was nothing, there was not a thing, there was no wow. reason to look. And it was two different cancers, right? So yeah. it was crazy. It was like one of those, everybody was like, how the hell? And then, like, when you're going to, uh, this like when you go to the doctors or you're dealing with the treatment and stuff people will ask how did you find out and you're like uh, i don't know if i want to tell them this they'll think i'm like story. A <laughs> yeah. wow i was listening to someone's story no i know it's crazy beautiful though right it is i love that what would you say to your 13 year old self if you could see her now that that uh, girl in cumbernauld what would you tell her I would say, uh, I'd say that it's okay to be different. And I would say that, that trying to find the tribe that you can hide in, you'll grow out of that mm. and that it's okay to grow out of that. And that also everybody is a little bit screwed up. Some people just hide it better. I love that. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the beautiful thing about... There's a, a great story about Michelangelo and David, whether it's true or not, because he wasn't a personal friend of mine, either Michelangelo. I do know some people called David, right? But there was a bit where they said to Michelangelo, so how did you make David? And he was like, well, I, I just I kind of chipped off the bits that weren't David, right? And although he would have said it not in a Scottish accent, because he really don't know. had... A, well, no, he didn't have to put on a pretend Scottish accent to be interesting. He'd already designed the helicopter. That guy was rocking shit. That was no, but like that. 
<laughs> oh, so it was. There you go. But that, but no. Well, I will say Michelangelo did it too, and then Da Vinci stole it because that's what <laughs> Italians do, right? Sure, sure. we'll take that. <laughs> but uh, I think that one of the lovely things about writing is that um, you do just allow it to evolve. It is never really finished. And uh, but but it's that thing of eventually you have to let it go. Like if you look at it in the sense that you're building yourself a lovely fitted suit out of a nice piece of fabric, there comes a point where you have to wear it. <laughs> you can't just keep going, oh, no, I want to do the pockets a little higher. you got to let it go. Carla, what is your question? My question is this. So you're, you're obviously a UK writer. Uh, you've been a successful uh, creator over there. You've come over here and you've been a successful creator over here. And obviously storytelling is universal. So there's a lot of common threads. I'm curious about the differences that you've noticed in between the cultures. What have you had to change? What have you had to kind of translate as it were? It's a really good question. It's generally structure and it's, hmm. it'll be its tone over here. <clears throat> it's a, do you know what I would, I would uh, relate it to teeth, right? Which is, and if you watch British television, the people have like just teeth, right? They don't have, they're not particularly white. They're just, they just got the teeth going on. They're not necessarily straightened. They've just got teeth, right? <clears throat> Whereas over here, if you watch TV, anybody that's doing anything has like really straightened, sorted out teeth and they're white. There's no messing about with the teeth over here. But there is a, there's a little bit like that with the writing here. It tends to be that it has to be more, uh, the structure is stronger than the voice, right? And that's, but that's that's in TV only, really. Well, movies, but then are movies even coming back? That's the point. In Britain, there there's a lot more fluidity in terms of what you can create. Here, because there's more money involved, the, the regime, if you like, is stronger. Like... So when I write sitcom, I wrote three series of a sitcom for the BBC, right? And when I wrote that, I wrote it on my own. There was no team of writers. There's no room. It's my shit. I do it. It's mine, right? I, you know, fall and or, or survive by my own sword. Over here, if you do sitcom, you have a writer's room. You're doing 26 episodes per series, probably, rather than just six. So the money involved means that there has to be more of an agreement. When I came here, I resented that. I'm not going to deny it. I was like, God, they're just making the same shit over and over again and changing the nouns, right? Like, why am I at this doctor stroke, teacher stroke, you know, ophthalmist or whatever? That was like, I'm like, this is the same thing over and over again, but just with like a different thing going on or the odd gay character, right? It was not... A change but uh, but now I understand it it is in order to mass market it's changing like with things like Netflix and the streaming you know Hulu and stuff like that um, I think that how and what you write is changing um, things are melding much more into one another and I also I have to say I don't uh, <laughs> I'm not down on American writing I like it. I think that there's a glossiness. That, like, if you can write sitcom like that, like those guys, or uh, it's, like, really impressive. 
but they're kind of the polar opposite to your French film where nothing really happens. Do you know what I mean? Where you just go, right, this is going to be like a lovely thing where there's lovely people looking meaningful and at the end of it, I'll not be much clearer in the world, right? Over here, there's a rhythm to it. In the UK, I feel like they take more risks in terms of newcomers or certainly used to. Mm -hmm. Like literally that I got a sitcom on the back of writing a play. Uh, I don't know that that, would, that wouldn't really happen here. No, it is in the UK, no. it does happen. Yeah, looking at something like uh, I May Destroy You or Fleabag, which was yeah. from a play, you know, and those are amazing. And even, you know, yeah. Afterlife, you know, Ricky Gervais, it's like, that's a very differently rhythmed story that yeah. would be a very hard sell over here. Don't get me wrong. In, in Britain, there is there's an issue with selling too. The, there is a different rhythm here and a different expectation over in Britain, people want their American-type sitcoms done by Americans. Mm. And the British sitcoms are not, not as structured, not as uh, here's for your ad breaks. Even to the degree that if you look at the BBC, they don't have ads. There is no mm. ad break, you know. And then it's one of the things that's fascinated me about streaming where I'm like, I wonder how that's going to change the act structures really mm -hmm. in the long run. Because we are so used to TV having yeah. these like places for breaks, breaks, whereas now, what's going to happen? You know. Yeah. Does that he, answer the question? He's nodding. We specifically have shifted how we've been teaching that stuff because, like Jan, the first Jan there is writing a sitcom, and that's one of the things. Is like, well, you don't necessarily have to, you know, there's because in the past there was a lot of concern. It's like, oh, well, I need to do the teaser and then a break and then act and then act and then act. And I was like, well, you don't really. I mean, you can, yeah. but you don't have to. And it's, yeah. it's not a nice sense of freedom. I mean, the, the, there's, the structure will roughly always stay there, but it, it depends on whether you have to leave a hook, right? Yes. Yeah. So, like, you'll have your plateaus in places, but whatever there's an ad break, you have to put in quite a heavy hook to make sure that people are going to come back. If there is no ad break, you don't need to, like, heighten the hook. You can, yeah. like, keep that, it at the level. That, what's a hook? A hook is a, a reason, like a cliffhanger or a, 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 a reason. A yeah. No, a hook. <laughs> Not a hook, a hook. What's wrong with you, Jan, first? <laughs> you know, a hook is the thing at the end of the uh, the segment that goes dun 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 yeah, I and then we go I thought it was some new thing I was well Lynn does it my all kinds of new things I do and I have complete weird words that I make up as well uh, like my youngest son I have rules in my house we have like the rules of, and it's my pandemic rules uh, which is that uh, my kids will always come in the kitchen when I'm cooking I don't really know why it is the rest of the time they're fine but as soon as I go near the stove, they're like right in there. So I have a rule that uh, if you're in my kitchen, you have to dance to whatever music I'm playing when I'm cooking. And so now they just accept it. I've got two teenagers and they dance like, oh, fuck, dancing, right? Like with such resentment. But we do, we have words where it's like my youngest son I call Sassy McShassy because he <laughs> is like sassy, right? And uh so he comes in and I'm going, hey, what are you up to, McShass? And he's like, wow, he totally answers to McShass, which I don't even know is a word. 
You think I made that up? Are your children Americans? They are. We are, well, they were born in London, but we are all Americans now, I have to say. Da, da, da. Can't get rid of us that easy. And interestingly, the my eldest wants to, he wants to go back and study in Glasgow. He wants to ah. study literature and film in Glasgow, so we go full circle. Yep. There's definitely a settling in the flow of things. I, I, I wonder where the structures will be, the sort of traditional structures of writing will be like this time next year. Because mm -hmm. I, I don't think people will go back to, like whether even movies are going to, like that people are going back to movies is, is fascinating to me. I don't know whether that's going to even work out, you know, whether movie theatres will go back and if they will then what will we see there? It's just, it's fascinating. I also know through working with someone else that there's the capability with technology to uh, do things with AI that mean that you can have actors in essence making stuff in different locations while we're in different stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like you, so that they can code a sitcom live sort of uh, with actors in different places. So I think that writing will spread and also the attention span of the way that the kids are coming up. Like gaming is going to decimate, I think, a streaming at mm. some point. Because we, like, we in our age are like, oh, well, oh, streaming's totally like taken out terrestrial TV. There you go. And we're like, sure, but gaming is something else. Like it's sort of fascinating, and even their market way that they do it is is like extraordinary. So like there's a thing in uh, Fortnite where they were playing with, I think it's Travis Scott or something, did uh, an event for them, and the way that it works in in the gaming world is it's all these tiny little things like micro purchases. So you can buy, I don't know what you buy, like a shoe or an outfit or something because mm -hmm. I'm like not down with the kids. And that guy made $20 million from that one event. Oh so like, God. because, yeah, because the way that the um, market is, is different. You're not even marketing to a country anymore. You're yeah. marketing to a generation throughout the world. Wow. Hearing that just makes me feel like I've done everything wrong. <laughs> No, but you haven't, though, because the point is, is that nobody ever can or ever will see the world exactly as you do. The assumption that if you're not on this, it's like, I totally get it because I go, oh, well, I'm not on that train. It, yeah. should, be, it should have been on that train that didn't yeah. exist five years ago. <laughs> How did I not know? Like, <clears throat> but I, it's where I think this thing about, well, you know, is it interesting? Yes. Does it scare me? Oh, yes. That That's quite a good book path in the sense that you don't have to be threatened by something new you can choose to be inspired by it mm -hmm. you know yeah because the thing that I get from the gaming thing which is I'm like whoa is so you can do a scripted thing that then becomes interactive with an That's audience cool. yeah that has no specific locality but is only connected through interest wow I'm like let me in <laughs> that does, that, see that is cool you right? re, re, refocus it and it sounds and, it, ah. and now, now I'm excited yeah I love it well Lynn what are you working on now what's next for you stuff 
<laughs> no, when you're doing stuff, you can't always yeah, tell about yeah. the stuff. I have a lot of private clients just now, a lot actually. And uh, so that's the busiest thing. Um, and we're doing, we have, we've taken on quite a lot of businesses. So we use story in business. I probably need to pick up writing again, but at the end of the day, I'm like, oh, no, I'm too busy so in other people's writing. But I'm I am doing way. other projects that are stuff where you go, what are you doing? Stuff, it'll be cool. When right? we can learn about it, it'll be cool. Yeah, it, you, I, you'll, it'll appear. But it is that thing where it always is one of the, you know, my 13-year-old self would be like, wouldn't it be magic to be doing stuff? And then you can say to people that I'm doing stuff. And the horrible thing about doing stuff is you have to just go, yeah, I'm doing stuff. <laughs> Can't even dine out in it, man. It's crap. I love it. <laughs> well, uh, where can people find your services? They can find me always at youtellyours.com. I'm always there. I'm always there in some form or another. And if I'm not there, somebody else is there. Or I'm Lynn Fergie on Twitter. You can come and talk to me about Pierce Morgan. Unless yes. you're Pierce Morgan, in which case don't. This just popped in my head. How do you feel about people doing Scottish accents? Like Americans, when they've tried to do a Scottish accent, because everyone thinks they can do a Scottish accent. I know. You know, if you do, uh, if you say space ghetto, so space ghetto in an American accent, so then in an American accent, that's how you say spice girl in a Scottish Oh, that's accent. right. Spice girl. Yeah. There you go. We do it out of love. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, sometimes. <laughs> Depends on the people, that's Heidi. True. Depends it on the people. Does. It always depends on the point of view, doesn't it? Absolutely. All right. Well, I want to thank you for hanging out with us, Lynn. It's been so uh, lovely to see you. Thank you for asking me. Thank you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Next time on Hearthside Salons, filmmaker and costume designer Samantha Pistana Markey grew up with a passion for texture and story. Their new autobiographical short film, I'm Not Okay, deals with the complex relationships between mothers and daughters, as well as first love between two queer high school students. Special thanks to our graphic and sonic designer, Joel Harris. Our theme music is by Lachey Swing. For more on our script coaching, online concept to pages screenwriting courses, and writing retreats in Italy, again someday, or to be part of our live recording audience, visit us at pagecraftwriting.com at Pagecraft Writing on Instagram, and at Pagecraft Write on Twitter. I'm Heidi from Pagecraft. Thanks for listening and stay well.